Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and turn the complicated into common sense. Here, I'll speak with supremely intriguing, refreshingly forthright experts, artists, scholars, scientists, entrepreneurs, leaders, and human beings with unique vantage points who can help expand our knowledge of what's happening on the planet while discovering more about ourselves. This is a space for curiosity, contemplation, and meaningful, sometimes difficult, conversations. To boot, each episode will end by gathering the key takeaways and turning them into short affirmations that you can repeat and use to transform your reality and stay charged up and resilient throughout the week. I look forward to hosting the journey and learning alongside you. So let's step into the world of Simplexity. It's anything but small talk. Peace. A New England Nightmare. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town. So my friend Erin is staying in town with me, and she is from New Hampshire. And, you know, we get a lot of suggestions. They're all really fun. They're really great. But she was like, hold up. New Hampshire has this bonkers murder. Two, I feel like New, murder. New England in general, like, yeah. I, I, I believe that it will be pretty harrowing. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, okay, let me just take you to the mid-1800s, right? At, off the Channel Islands of New Hampshire. And it's it's cold and it's foggy and there's like fishermen there and all the fishermen like like rubber stuff you know just alone with their own thoughts that's where we start this this murder baby i feel like a lot of like horror movies kind of start like that like now i know what you did last summer mm-hmm. i feel like there does that involve like somebody like a fisherman jacket like a fisherman jacket and a hook like or something Adelia's catalog mm-hmm. that was a 90s high school oh murder i thought there was something with the with the you think about Moby dick yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Is that Lindsay Lohan, yeah, yeah. movie dick. Okay, <laughs> that's right, that's got right. it. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Nailed it. Um, so we're going to be talking about the double murder at Smutty Nose Island, which is such a perfectly New England name. I, I mean, you can't think of that. And and it was called so Smutty Nose Island is off the Isle of Shoals. It's about six miles off of New Hampshire, and it was named by fishermen who said said that they saw a tiny island at the sea level. And it had seaweed all over it, and that the island looked like the smutty nose of a sea animal. And it's like, oh, the uh, an insult sticks to create the name of an island? Great. We're back. We're in New Hampshire, 1800s. And it's the home of, Smutty Nose Island is the home of the, one of the most famous New England murders. And again, when Aaron told me about this, I was like, yeah, baby, we're in. I got this. So let's go to 1868, Right. We got fishermen, we got people, immigrants coming to make America their home. They're there, they're trying to colonize these almost uninhabitable islands off the East Coast. John Hontvet and Marion Hontvet arrived from Norway in 1868, and they were the only people living on Smutty Nose Island in the Isle of Shoals. The Isle of Shoals is this cluster of islands around there, and we'll be talking about them because boats are kind of bopping around. It's all part of this murder mystery. 
At dawn, each day, Don would navigate his schooner, the Clarabella, to the fishing grounds and draw his lines, then sail to the nearby Portsmouth, New Hampshire. After selling the fish, he would buy the bait, then sail for home in the late afternoon. His industriousness earned him a lot of respect, a lot of success as a fisherman, a lot of the trust from the local neighbors around him. And and around him, too, they only had like, he had like 50 neighbors in all of these islands. Business was good, and in a short time, the hot vets prospered, lived con- comfortably in the island domain. Uh, Marion Hotvet too. She was a gentlewoman. She loved decorating. She was very into making this place her home after coming over here as an immigrant. According to Yankee Magazine, she always kept the sunny window shelves filled with an assortment of plants. They were making it a happy home. But, but although they liked where they live now, they missed their families in Norway. Marin cherished their small red house, standing in contrast to the rundown fish sheds scattered along the island. She had a small dog named Ringe, who also plays a part in the story that she loved very much. They lived on Smutty Nose about two years before Louis Wagner came into their lives. Wagner was a dark, muscular 28-year-old Prussian man with a thick accent. He was always broke. He worked um, the Maine and New Hampshire waters off the Isle of Shoals. He met John and Marion Hantevet, who, for whatever reason, took a personal interest in him and his safety. They would give him food. They would give him clothing. They would often hire him for short gigs when he really needed the money. He was friendly enough to them, and they liked him, but other people around really didn't. He seemed kind of creepy to other fishermen. He was kind of a loner, and he often worked alone. A Wagner fished from Star, Malaga, and Cedar Islands, which are connected to Smutty Nose by seawalls and breakwaters. The hot vets would be hard-pressed to avoid a neighbor so close and would probably interact with him a lot, thus creating their friendship. Smutty Nose itself is only one half mile long and not really as wide, so they would come over, or he would come over to their house. Again, they were close, like family members almost. In May 1871, Marin's happiness swelled with the arrival of her sister, Karen Christensen, from Norway. The circumstances of Karen's arrival were kind of sad. She had lost a lover in Norway, and she couldn't get over him, which is very, like, romantically New Englandy of her. Marin was certain that she would help her sister overcome her sadness and build a new life on the island. Several weeks after she came, Karen got a position as a live-in maid with a family on another island called Appledore Island, very close to them, uh, which is also the largest island of Shoals. One year passed, and John's business continued to grow, so he hired Louis Wagner, 1872, Wagner was also given a room in the Hantavet's house and seemed more like a part of the family than ever before. But in October of that year, John was kind of had more than he needed, more help. Um, he didn't really need Lewis around that much. His brother Matthew came in from Norway to live with them. And Ivan Christensen and his new wife, Anthe, also came to live with them. So it was getting a little bit crowded up in Smutty Nose. The arrivals were welcomed by John and Marin, and the five lived together now in the cottage. Ivan and Matthew went to work with John, and Anthony helped Marin keep the house. Louis Wagner stayed on with the Hantavits for five weeks after Matthew, Ivan, and Anthony arrived, and then booked passage as a hand on another fishing schooner, the Addison Gilbert, and he left Smutty Nose in November. The Hantavits surely like, were secure in the knowledge that they had helped him a little bit and kind of sent him off. It was kind of bittersweet, too, because they had been friends for so long, but they were like, Family's here. We got to let this guy go. In November, the Hantavits would take kind of a, a turn 
like all of them. The Addison Gilbert, which was the boat that Lewis took to get more work, was wrecked and he was working from the wharves and then he earned so little that he was destitute. He lived in a boarding house for a while, was kind of bopping around. And in March 1873, he was completely homeless and completely in debt. Of course, a horrible winter comes around in New Hampshire. So this was particularly bad in 1873. John, Matthew, and Ivan set sail in the morning of March 5th. They planned to sell the catch in Portsmouth and buy bait arriving on the early train from Boston. At sea, they met a neighbor and asked him to stop at Smutty Nose and tell the women where they were going. They planned on being home later that evening. It was late afternoon when the women got the message. They had already prepared supper and decided to keep it hot until the men came home. Karen was now living on Smutty Nose also. She had left her position to take a job as a seamstress in Boston, but was visiting with the family before she moved. When the Clarabella docked in Portsmouth early that evening, Lewis Wagner was present to help tie the vessel to the wharf. He asked John and the others if they would be returning to Smutty Nose in the evening, a question everyone thought was kind of weird, but didn't ultimately leave them suspicious. Again, he was an old and good friend. John explained that they would return home if the bait arrived on schedule, but if it was late, they would stay in port and return home in the morning. Then asked Wagner to help bait the lines, a chore which would consume the entire night. Wagner agreed, and then after he did that, he left the wharf. It was 7.30 that evening when Lewis was last seen in Portsmouth. He apparently learned that the bait didn't arrive on the early train and concocted a bizarre scheme to, burglar- to burglarize the Hontavet's home. At about 10 p.m., the three women in the Hontavet house decided not to wait up any longer. They changed into their nightgowns, and Marin fixed a bed for Karen in the kitchen, where it was warmer than the upstairs bedrooms. She and Aunt, um, I hope I'm saying that right, Anthe, then retired to the adjoining bedroom. Rather than land in the cove where the Clarabella was usually moored, Lewis, who had rowed the 12 miles to the far side of the island, he disembarked on Smutty Mouth's rocky shore. He watched the lone cottage for several hours after the light coming through the windows had disappeared. Confident the women were asleep, he trudged up the slope in his heavy rubber boots to the door of the house. He tried the door and found it was not bolted, swung it open easily. In the darkness of the kitchen, he closed the door behind him and jammed a piece of wood into the latch of the bedroom door behind which Marion and Anthe slept unsuspectingly. He intended to accomplish this raid on Detective, but at that moment, Ringe, the family dog, barked really loudly, waking Karen. Seeing the dark figure silhouetted against a window, she asked, John, is that you? Marion sat up in bed and called to her sister, Karen, is something wrong? John scared me, Karen replied, still half asleep. With that, Wagner reached for a chair and struck Karen in the darkness. The young woman screamed frantically as Wagner continued to assault her with a chair. Karen, Karen, what's wrong? Marin shouted as she jumped out of bed and tugged at the door. Karen struggled to her feet as Wagner dealt another crushing blow. Battered and bleeding, she was thrown against the bedroom door, freeing the latch, and fell at Marin's feet. Wagner rushed again, swinging and hitting both of them. Marin somehow managed to drag her sister out of his reach. She closed and barricaded the door as Lewis tried to force his way in. Oof. Petrified, Anthe watched the gruesome scene from a corner of the room. Anthe, run, hide, Marin implored as she bolted the door from the inside. Nearly incoherent, Anthe cl- climbed out the window and stood barefoot in the snow. She was frozen, and then Marin screamed, run, but it was too late. Wagner had given up trying to enter the room and left the house. As he approached Anthe, he has a de- his identity was revealed in the moonlight because they could finally see him, and she screamed, Louis, and everyone heard it. This is important, too. As Anthe stretched out her hands before him and reached to the woodpile, she seized a long, he seized a long handle of the axe. In one swift motion, he raised the instrument high into the night and drove the blade into Anthe's head. Her lifeless body shuddered violently and slumped as Wagner continued striking her, all in full view of Marin, who stood so close on the other side of the window, she, this is a quote, could have reached out and touched his arm. Let's take a little break there. 
All right, so we all know dating is extremely difficult. I should definitely know because I found love on national television in front of millions of people. Hey guys, this is Kendall Long and I'm starting a new podcast called Down to Date. We have bars and apps for dating, so why not do it on a podcast? We bring in two complete strangers to see if they are down to date. We ask questions you would never want to ask on a first date. Questions like, who did you vote for during the last presidential election? Or what was your first sexual experience like? We also have very heated debates. Debates like, is it justifiable to murder a murderer? Very lighthearted, you know, your very typical first date conversation. Our first episode drops on September 17th, so please make sure do not miss it. You want to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure you check out Down to Date and see if people can fall in love on a podcast. Hurry, hurry, step right up. Come, marvel at tales of weird history that prove fiction has nothing on reality. Thrill at stories of strange science from the utterly mind-bending to the horribly misguided. Chill from true tales of the unexplained paranormal, and supernatural. All this plus comedy, romance, and variety. It's colossal. It's stupendous. It's your new favorite podcast, a delicious, mysterious tincture called Odd Tonic. Join us in the parlor each week, dear guest, for a cup of tea and a bizarre, enthralling tale to delight the mind and stir the senses. Odd Tonic. An exquisite elixir for those who love the odd? Or a tantalizing treat for those who are the odd? Yes. Odd Tonic is available on your favorite podcast app, YouTube, and at oddtonicsociety.com. If you like weird and strange history as much as I do, then I have the podcast for you. I'm Jason Horton, host of Strange Year. Each episode, I break down the strange history and cultural happenings during that year, like 1977, the WOW signal, 1963, Three Tramps Theory, 1844, the Millerite Movement, 1997, the Phoenix Lights, 1896, the Shortest War, 2004, Benjamin Kyle, 1518, the Dancing Plague, 1985, the Move Bombing, 1972, Remote Viewing. So to get your weekly weird history fix, pause the podcast you're listening to right now and subscribe to strange year wherever you listen to podcasts before you go on i have a theory what lewis wagner wanted he wanted their patreon.com slash ghost town pod he wanted those bonus episodes every month Mm -hmm. and help support a podcast when podcasts didn't even exist so they were like what are you talking about they're like well there's only one in my mind that exists and it's ghost town and Mm -hmm. Go to the Patreon, so... And she's like, what is WWW? <laughs> Just, like, slow down. It's, like, over here. Heard at a nearby uh, fisherman's wharf. The words trembling on every old grizzled fisherman's lips was, get those bonies. Get, <laughs> those, no. are, get, get those, those bonies. bonies. Yes. I'm chilled to the bonies. <laughs> These bony eps. <laughs> Patreon.com slash ghost town pod. Also, you can see pictures of him trying to get at that Patreon at our Instagram, which is ghost town pod. Yeah. Can I get back into it? Yeah, let's get back into it. We, okay. we stopped in the middle of a very grisly murder. And you know what? It's still going on. So basically where we're at is we have uh, Karen was struck. She's dying in the house. Um, Anthe is got has an axe in her head. And Marin is watching all this from an arm's length away. 
Marin's keen self, sense of self-preservation told her they were both doomed if she stayed with Karen in the house. So she wrapped herself in a heavy skirt and hearing Wagner entering the house again, she climbed through the window onto the bloodied snow with Ringe, who was now silent, close behind. As she ran the spiny ice covering the undergrowth tore at her bare feet, she expected to find Wagner's boat in the cove and was near panic upon discovering it wasn't there. Her first impulse was to hide in the cellar of a vacant building because she thought that that would be a safe place to be, but then she realized that maybe Wagner was trailing her. And so instead, she ran along the shore to the far side of the island. And again, this island is about a mile long. Past the cottage, circumventing it as widely as possible, uh, she heard Karen in the house uh, just moaning, dying. She kept going. She had her dog, and she crawled between two rocks near the water's edge where the pounding waves obliterated all the other sounds of the screams. And actually, that place is now a famous site, too. At the house, Karen was trying to escape through a window when Wagner burst back into the room. He swung the axe wildly. He kept swinging at her, and he broke the handle. He was swinging so hard with the axe. She got struck and finally died after Wagner, again, hit her and then twisted a handkerchief around her throat and pulled until she was dead. Lewis left a bloody trail of footprints in the snow surrounding every building on the island, trying to find Marin, who he realized that he had to find because she had escaped and she knew his, his identity. He went back to the house... Um, dragged um, Anthe's body by the feet into the kitchen. He then, exhausted, brewed a pot of tea, leaving bloodstains on the handle, and ate some food he had brought with him. He didn't even steal food. He ate a lunch, a bag lunch He's that he brought He's not an with animal. Him. He's not a savage, okay? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's rude. Right. That's right. He used a plate, knife, and fork from the kitchen, though, so better wash it afterwards, you know? After ransacking the house and finding only $15... He left, leaving Anthe's body on the floor beside a clock that had been knocked off the mantle in the struggle, and it stopped at seven minutes past one. So it's like he left a scene of a crime. Like he's like, how can I make this crime scene even better and more overt? Oh, I'm going to knock this clock, which will stop at the time, the exact time that I left. Great, I got like blood stained prints all over this tea. All over this house. He didn't steal any food. Just I don't want people running around (laughs) saying, oh, he stole food. Mm -hmm. No, no. Thankfully. Can we clear the air on that one? It was B-Y-O-L. Bring your own lunch. B-Y-O-L? Yeah. Oh, okay. Around 8 the next morning, Marin, who is hiding, staggered on, again, this frozen tundra of a New Hampshire island on the breakwater connecting Smutty Nose and the island of Malaga and waved her arms to the children of... Uh, George Ingerbredson, they were all from Northern Europe, who were playing outside their home. When she, where she escaped into the island, like I said, was memorialized. It's called Marin's Rock. So she was waving her hands, and once alerted, Jorg rode the quarter mile to rescue her. He then he returned her to the care of his wife, um, and then gathered a bunch of men to go search Smutty Nose for what she had been talking about. When the party landed on the small island, they discovered the whole murder scene. Finding no one there, the men returned to Appledore and searched there also. A few hours later, the Clarabella was spotted on the horizon. Matthew and Ivan rode, rode to Appledore, and John snailed the schooner to its mooring on Smutty Nose. That's a very New England line. When the boat landed, the men were told that there was just, they had just been told this, there was some trouble on Smutty Nose. They rushed to Ingerbredson's house, where they found Marin in a horrible state, as you might imagine. Ivan wanted to know where Anthe was. Tearfully, Marin answered, she's at home. 
which is not wrong. Ivan and Matthew flew to the uh, boat, rode furiously back to Smutty Nose. They landed at the same time that John and the three uh, raced to the house. So they all were converging upon the the house. Ivan pushed open the door and entered the kitchen. There, lying on the floor, was uh, Anthe's wife, just matted in blood. Covering his face, he pushed his way out of the door and collapsed senseless in the snow. This is um, Ivan. John and Matthew viewed the full contents of the destroyed home. They then sailed the Clarabella to Appledore. Later that afternoon, John and the others told the authorities in Portsmouth. And then word of the whole thing spread pretty fast amongst the 50 people that lived on these islands. A description of Lewis Wagner was telegraphed to the police throughout the coastal states, and then evening editions were filled with all of the gory details of this murder. Two men, both of whom knew Wagner and were sure of their description, informed the police that they had seen him in Newcastle at about 6 o'clock that morning. The stolen dory was also found in Newcastle near a place called Devil's Den. Appropriate. After returning to where he was staying at the time, uh, Wagner changed his clothes. He had caught a 9 a.m. train for Boston. There he purchased some new boots and a new suit of clothes and then just kind of flirted with some women. Kind of did, did a little bit of uh, dilly-dallying with some women in Boston at a boarding house. John Hontevet told the authorities of Wagner's usual haunts, and that evening Boston police found him. When arrested, Wagner was wearing his new suit over his old clothes. He offered no resistance, and he was arrested. The next day, Wagner was transferred from jail to Boston for the trip to Portsmouth, followed by a crowd of 500 people. At each depot along the route, the train was met by tons of outraged citizens demanding his immediate demise. It's reported that a crowd of 10,000 people filled the streets of Portsmouth and narrowly missed tearing him to pieces when he arrived. All of the while, by the way, he is asserting his innocence, like very vehemently asserting his innocence, that he had nothing to do with any of this, that this is all a giant misunderstanding. He was friends with a family for many, many years. And that's where some of the conspiracy comes from that we'll hear about a little bit later. Smutty Nose was in the jurisdiction of the state of Maine, and Wagner would have have to be tried there. Three days later, when he was moved from the Portsmouth jail to the train, a lynch mob of over 200 fishermen from the islands were waiting. The police escort drew their revolvers and a company of bayonet-wielding Marines were called from the Navy base, but the mob was not easily subdued. The escort was showered with stones and bricks, and they were all pretty much attacked until they got out of the vicinity. The trial of Lewis Wagner started on June 9, 1873. After nine days of testimony and 55 minutes of deliberation, he was found guilty. Surprise, surprise. But he broke out of jail within a week uh, and was recaptured in New Hampshire. On June 25th, 1875, 27 months after his double murder, Wagner was led into the yard of the state prison in Thomaston, Maine, and hanged. Marin and John Hontovit were never to live in the Isle of Shoals again. They moved to Portsmouth, where John continued working as a fisherman. Ivan, his spirit broken, his wife dead, could not bear to leave the neighborhood. He worked as a carpenter in Appledore for the rest of the summer of 1863, never out of sight of the cottage where he was robbed of his happiness. Very New England, very creepy. Very damning. He never spoke unless spoken to and never lifted his eyes from work when speaking. At the end of the summer, he re- returned alone to Norway and was never heard of again. So sad. <laughs> Since Lewis so vehemently denied his innocence, there are some conspiracy theories that have come up with the case. Here are two of the most popular ones perpetuated by Lewis Wagner. So the first one is the mystery schooner. Because Smutty Nose was a fishing town, someone on an unknown boat may have invaded Smutty Nose Island on that night, but an invader would have had to have intimate knowledge of the house and the axe and a reason to break in. The stranger must have looked enough like Lewis Wagner for Anthe to scream his name as he attacked, and it would be all 
But unthinkable coincidence that Wagner was missing for 11 hours, did not sleep in his bed that night, and was seen traveling from Newcastle to the following morning, and suddenly decided to run to Boston. In fact, it was Wagner who, from death row, suggested this idea that a mystery schooner had been seen, and that a man from a door near the Isles, Isle of Shoals was the guy who came out, killed a bunch of people, and left. There was no mysterious schooner seen by anyone else, but this is something that he really stood by when he was getting tried, and then we finally, before he died. Then there was another theory, and this is a little bit more sensational, uh, the Marin Deathbed Confession. A widely reprinted article in an 1876 newspaper reported that a woman formerly of Smutty Nose Island had confessed on her deathbed that she killed her sister and sister-in-law with an axe. Marin. Historians searched for the deathbed confession for generations. Edmund Pearson, author of Murder at Smutty Nose, searched for the origin of the story without success, but labeled it as nothing more than idle gossip. The origin of the story, once again, is probably Louis Wagner. After being condemned to hang, he frequently accused Marin Hantavet, the surviving victim, of being the killer. She was the only person on the island. She al- he also sometimes blamed her husband, John, of being a part of a murder plot with his wife to kill them. Hantavet wanted to kill the women, Wagner suggested, because they were costing him too much money in food and rent. Like many of Wagner's desperate comments, it's a little bit ridiculous— when his alibi proved false in court, Wagner accused just about everyone who testified against him as being guilty of evil deeds. A lot of people use this as kind of an entry point into the sensationalized acts that happened around this murder. But really, it's not like... Marin was even still alive when this was reported. She lived 11 years past this rumor of her deathbed confession. Years later, a young Lizzie Borden of Fall River, Massachusetts, which is something that we talked about early in the podcast, was tried and acquitted of killing her father and stepmother with an axe. That highly publicized account of a female accused of a double axe murder may well have fueled the Marin theory into the present day. Also, lots of novels, again, use this vantage point that maybe something happened with Marin and her husband. But really, it wasn't that at all. It was really just a a pretty straightforward murder that resulted in a very mysterious New England I mean, they talk about it's Occam's razor. Is that what mm-hmm. it is? That's yeah. Probably Most obvious he, is probably true. Yeah. Things that. Uh, yeah. But it's kind of, I mean, it's interesting to indulge in these, but again, they are just him being desperate, trying very hard to not get killed for what he did. And no one's saying that he didn't bring his own food, that he. Oh, yeah. He, he didn't That's he not a conspiracy. For, okay, no. good. Because no. th- then I'm like, yeah. uh, you're a bad person. No, you brought BYOL is alive and well. <laughs> oh, no. Guys, I'll make this quick so you can get back to your murder podcast or whatever you're listening to. I'm Drama from Group Chat, the number one podcast in the world. We make cool people smarter and smart people cooler. Seriously. Our topics range from Kim Kardashian to Jeff Bezos to Donald Trump and everything in between. If you want to be entertained and educated, check us out right now in the podcast app. Just search group chat. By the way, the ex-boyfriend isn't the killer. It's her best friend who is. Sorry for ruining that. But now that you have a little bit more time, give us a listen.